0: This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and I want to thank Bev Capshaw for hosting last week's show in my absence and delivering a wonderful program. My guest today is Dr. Heather Johnston, a veterinarian who serves as the medical director at Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, a multifaceted operation in Jupiter, Florida, functioning as wildlife refuge, veterinary hospital, rehabilitation facility, and education center. As previously covered on this show, the sanctuary is also preparing to move to a larger location. In celebration of Women's History Month, Bush Wildlife Sanctuary is presenting a Women in Wildlife panel discussion at the sanctuary on March 29th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. The panel will feature Executive Director Amy J. Kite, past guest on this show, Animal Director Alyssa Bean, Educational Director Rebecca Reed, and Dr. Johnson. Subsequently, that panel can be seen on YouTube, by the way. As Talking Animals' own marking of Women's History Month, we've invited Dr. Johnston to be a guest on today's show, hoping to get a sneak preview of her presentation at the panel of discussion, as well as exploring various aspects of being a veterinarian for a wildlife sanctuary, hospital, rehab, etc., when her day job, so to speak, involves working in a more conventional practice, chiefly treating cats and dogs. We'll discuss this and more when I speak with Dr. Heather Johnston in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Meanwhile, later in today's program and extending our recognition of Women's History Month, I'll speak with Thalia Tatham, who this week is opening House of Vegano, a uh, restaurant in St. Petersburg serving vegan sushi that many may be familiar with from being offered at her pop-ups and other temporary outlets. By contrast, this new venture is a permanent location. I'll speak with Tatham about House of Vegano later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, the range of animals housed there, cats and dogs, and who knows what else with dr johnson with a reminder that i invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 this is dr heather johnston on talking animals on wmnf good morning dr johnson Good morning. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. I appreciate it. Not a problem. So let's start with a bit of history. I'd be hard-pressed to count how many times over the years that I've interviewed people who grew up wanting to be a veterinarian, but that didn't quite work out for one reason or another, though there's still many of them have ended up deeply involved in, say, animal welfare, rescue, other animal fields. It's just a very common narrative. You are a veterinarian, so I'm curious, when did you first want to be one?
1: Uh, There was Not necessarily a time that I remember that I didn't want to be a veterinarian. Um, The closest I can come to it is when I was a really small child. I thought I was going to be a jockey. Um, I'm about five foot nine, so you know somewhere around seven or eight, my mom had a conversation, sweetie, that's not going to happen yeah
0: that, that <laughs> might be a, 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 a might and, be a size issue from, for a jockey, yeah,
1: right from there on out, um I was pretty committed to becoming a veterinarian,
0: wow, so that was pretty unwavering then for many many years, and again it's uh, it's just so common to people that are involved with animals but but you basically kept on that path and uh other than briefly considering the jockey uh occupation. And I guess it sounds like you've just been a veterinarian all the way.
1: Absolutely. I've pretty much always been involved with animals and um, interested in animals, whether it's birding out in the field and, and watching them or working with wildlife over bush wildlife or working with, um, we jokingly say, whatever fits to the front door here at Harmony Animal Hospital, where we do see primarily dogs and cats, but I do see quite a few exotic pets like birds, reptiles, rabbits, ferrets, those
0: types of things. Wow. Okay. So we're going to get into probably many other things in a moment. What do you think? Back to the childhood portion of the story. What do you think prompted that ambition? Were you just always like uh, enchanted by animals and said, "Hey, this is this is kind of what I want to do"? Or, or what do you think specifically? Maybe the way you grew up kind of sent you down that path.
1: Absolutely. So I was very lucky to have a family that was able to do a lot of things like outdoor activities. We did a lot of camping um, all over the country when I was a small child. And observing wildlife, um, understanding nature, supporting conservation were always things that my parents fostered in us. And we engaged our activities around, whether it was going to various wildlife sanctuaries like Gossetea Island or the whole way out to Yellowstone or just doing things like the Audubon Christmas Bird Count at our own bird feeders in western Pennsylvania where I grew up, um, that is one thing that I definitely remember from my childhood that was always part of my experience, and so animals were just part of how I grew up.
0: Sounds like there was a real sort of pro-nature, pro-environment, pro-animal kind of ethos in the family with those trips and camping and uh, just generally. Absolutely yep so let's fast forward a bit so you've you attended vet school at the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine, and what kind of practice were you initially interested in or did you initially start doing after graduating
1: Well, I had been working in a veterinary practice in the Cleveland area um, for a number of years as a veterinary technician or veterinary nurse, and at that practice, we did a large Uh, percentage of avian patients, reptile, and then we also provided care for a number of wildlife rehabilitation facilities in the area. And that has always been my passion, sort of my sub-passion, I guess, within veterinary medicine. Um, But I was able to be involved with different programs there from, you know, the providing medical support for the reintroduction of the peregrine falcon and the trumpeter swans up in Ohio. And we cared for a number of those animals in our, our typical dog-cat practice. Um, but we also did a lot of avian work, and I've just always been intrigued by that. So whenever I went through vet school, that was something that I was pretty committed to being involved with lifelong. Um, but I, I enjoy all aspects of it from kind of the, you know, new well appointment if they've adopted a young bird or puppy or kitten, um, all the way through dealing with more complicated medical issues and, and trying to adjust behavior concerns. Um, it's There's very little that doesn't appeal to me about vet med.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting because to me, I guess I had been struck by what seemed at least like kind of this unusual mix of wildlife And birds and uh, amongst those and otherwise and cats and dogs but it sounds like really that was kind of early on like that was just because of opportunity and and your own interest and again maybe partly the way you grew up and shaped that interest as well i mean that sounds like that's been like a through line really almost from the get-go
1: absolutely i i've always um birds have always intrigued me i am constantly stunned and amazed by their intelligence and their cognitive abilities um i'm sure there's a small part of me that's also enamored with the fact that they can fly which is something we can't easily do without an aircraft um there are just many aspects of of their uniqueness that i've always been drawn to um but i also find things like indigo snakes and ferrets and um you know, even some of the invertebrates that we have here in South Florida, uh, interesting as well.
0: So that's great because, I mean, then any random part of any random day, it's not like, okay, well, yeah, it's fine to get through another day of, of- cats and dogs or whatever, but tomorrow I'll be back with my beloved birds or my uh, bear that I'm treating over at the sanctuary or whatever. It sounds like every part of every day, just inherently you're interested in in, in, and sort of passionate about.
1: Absolutely. You you honestly never know what's going to come through the front door, both at Bush Wildlife Sanctuary and at the veterinary practice that I work at.
0: Would you say that this kind of mix, and especially that you established it early on and and, then obviously kept it going is that a professional anomaly of some kind that that's kind of more specific to you or, or at least rarer than than uh than most i mean it seems like one vets kind of go one path or another and rarely you know keep as many paths uh, going as, as you managed to over the course of your career
1: it is a little bit unusual um i had uh initially wanted to go ahead and get bird uh, board certified and, and specialize in avian and, and exotic medicine, um, and then life just kind of happened and took me on a number of different paths, and that never actually came to be something that I was able to to work through. Um, but I, you know, I do my best to continue a CE on many different um, fronts. Um, I have a big network of people that are a phone call and email, or these days a text away that I kind of network with from zoo vets to other wildlife veterinarians and and specialists in the different fields um, just to try and keep up on track. Um, But that's part of it is being a general practitioner veterinarian, you're sort of expected to know a fair bit about a large number of things, and then we're able to network and get animals into specialists if we need to really find focus on something that we can't address.
0: And how often at Harmony they're kind of the the more in theory, conventional, uh, veterinary hospital, how often are you seeing animals or, or just more, I guess, more generally, does the practice see animals outside of the sort of cat dog realm that most of us would expect?
1: Um, it honestly depends on the day. You know, some days I see two or three exotic pets. Some days I see 10 or 15. It just depends on, wow. on what's going on and how the schedule falls out. Um, so it's, it's pretty much a variety depending on the day.
0: And when it's as many as, as 10 or 15, are a lot of those birds or what other kind of exotics are we talking about?
1: Um, I would say it's a pretty pretty close mix between birds and small mammals. And those small mammals would primarily be rabbits and guinea pigs. We mm. do have some ferrets, um, but that's over the years kind of been a little bit. Of a less common pet than it was, say, ten or fifteen years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then we do actually see a fair number of reptiles in our our practice, and I would say the most common are, are bearded dragons and ball pythons. Hmm. Um, but then there's a, a large variety of other species that we can see.
0: Wow. And I don't know if that's also somewhat particular to, like, a regional thing. Whether are other areas there'd be less common to see that that maybe that kind of mix or I don't know if that's maybe it's just more standard than I would realize at a, at a but I otherwise would say as a kind of a, your your basic uh, veterinary hospital it just seems like maybe that's partly related to being in or around Jupiter or near Jupiter farms and so maybe I don't know if there's a higher proportion of those kind of pets that people have in their households than than would typically be found elsewhere
1: I'm not sure um, I you know I have one of my my best friends and a classmate who practices in West Virginia she's Uh, There's not quite as many veterinarians in that area, and she has uh, ended up seeing exotics over the years. Um, and I sometimes get a text or a phone call from her about you know what the next step might be um, because there's not necessarily veterinarians in that area. There certainly aren't any specialists in the area that she's in that she can refer to. So she tries to get them in, you know, work up the initial things, and then they can get them transferred to other places. But we're lucky here because we do have a number of, of specialists in the. Um, Probably pretty quickly, I can think of half a dozen off the top of my head within, you know, 30 minutes drive. But other parts of the country, you may be looking to drive one to three hours to get to an actual specialist. So some of it's regional. Um, Some of it, I think, is uh, just what people are comfortable with doing Um, and, and then the type of pets that are in the area.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess that's kind of what I was getting at is that it seems like in other regions, maybe for the reasons you just cited, people would be probably tend to be maybe more comfortable with your standard issue cats and dogs or occasional birds, depending on what kind of birds they were, versus let's say some of the reptiles you mentioned or some of the other things that that you guys see sounds like not infrequently at at your practice.
1: A lot of times, um, you know, most of what we're doing is educating folks. There are quite a few folks in this area that do have a lot of experience and come in with a lot of knowledge, um, but especially the species that are sold in pet stores um, or that are purchased at flea markets or trade shows, depending on who they purchase from, they may not be able to get a lot of information on how that animal should be kept, different you know, things that are important for their diet, their husbandry, their behavior. Um, and so a lot of times, the problems we're seeing especially in exotic pets are derived from the fact that the well-intentioned people maybe didn't have all the information that they needed so we're doing a lot of education and those types of things and as well as then working up other more complicated medical problems that can develop in the different animals
0: yeah so they're stepping into a world with a, a less conventional pet so sometimes maybe like the exact diet or some of the specifics of, of caring for them maybe weren't covered as specifically as they maybe should have been. So you're probably trying to backpedal, I guess, a little bit from that if there's some kind of condition that may have developed as a result of that. Correct. Correct. Yeah. This is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Heather Johnston, Medical Director at Bush Wildlife Sanctuary in Jupiter, Florida, where on March 29th she'll be part of a Women in Wildlife panel discussion. At the sanctuary she treats wildlife of various types, while as we're discussing here she also works at a somewhat more conventional practice, I guess, caring for cats and dogs and birds and reptiles and other things. So if you'd like to ask Dr. Johnson a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So with all that in mind, Dr. Johnson, do you have to undergo various kinds of additional training um, across like various kinds of species just to uh, be in a position to treat what sounds like almost any animal, any part of any random day, depending on where you are, which which location, it sounds like you might be treating almost any bird or animal. Does that require sort of keeping up in a certain way that, that again, maybe a lot of vets wouldn't necessarily have to keep up with maybe the breadth of uh, new training or additional training?
1: Right. You do. Um, I mean, there's not necessarily strict guidelines. We have some legal requirements as far as maintaining our license in the state of Florida, um, but I usually far exceed that. um, As far as my continuing education hours that I put in, Um, I typically uh, go to a conference at least once a year uh, that primarily focuses on birds, reptiles, and then also small exotic mammals and wildlife, depending. Uh, I usually also do CE in dog cat practice, Um, there's a lot of opportunities now, you know, quarantine and the COVID virus kind of changed how we do things, but it really ramped up the availability of continuing education online um, so that we can go in and do, um, you know, whether it's a a video presentation and then follow-up questioning um, or sometimes in a more traditional format where it's, you know, read this article and you have to take a test and submit the the answers to get credit, but there's a lot of different opportunities. So trying to make sure that you keep current. And then you also do a lot of individual research research kind of day-to-day as cases come up, looking at different listservs that we belong to that we can go in and discuss with specialists what the best course might be, as well as sometimes have access to other journal publications and continuing education conferences that might be posted in those forums that we can go back and review and do research. So there's a lot of different ways for us to keep up and get more information on how best to treat the patients.
0: Yeah. And CE, I assume, is continuing education? Can- yes. Okay. Because yes. um, I just, as, as we've been talking here, I sort of piss you, given the wealth of uh, animals and birds that you've been interested in from a very young age and obviously that's continued and maybe some of those interests or passions have grown i sort of picture you uh when there are conferences or classrooms like being in the front row with your hand up like being super zealous about uh uh, learning and and uh, uh, adding more to your knowledge just again because it just seems like that's been an interest from childhood but also again your day-to-day professional life involves any number of possible scenarios of any number of possible species that you might be treating
1: absolutely although i will tell you that i am not in the front row i'm more of a back row
0: kind of <laughs> okay guy cause
1: i have I, I get antsy and i gotta sit up stand up because i'm not used to sitting still so yeah the lecture goes more than Fifteen or twenty minutes. I've got to be able to stand up and move, but I I definitely enjoy learning and hearing what other people are doing and reading about the research and trying to stay as current as I can.
0: Yeah. No, I guess I just meant more the image of the uh, super excited, passionate uh, student who's like uh, uh, beyond excited, and so that often does sit in the front row. But I totally get what you mean about uh, (laughs) sitting in the back further. So when it comes to birds, because that sounds like that really has been you know, even just from family trips and ever since, really. Are there certain kinds of birds that e- either just personally as a birder and or professionally as a veterinarian that you're particularly enchanted with more than, than others? Or
1: I can probably find something interesting to think about of almost every bird group out there. Um, I have always been enamored by the athleticism of raptors so your hawks eagles owls um falcons they intrigue me with their physical ability and and how fast peregrine falcons can dive how far and high some of the other species and we're moving over into geese like the bar-headed geese that fly over mount everest and we're still not sure how they can manage to do that from a biologic standpoint because the air is so thin so to speak up there um but then i'm also very Intrigued, and it's it's always mind-blowing to me um, what we're learning day-to-day about the cognition of animals like parrots, also your corvids, which are going to be your crows and your jay species, and how much they potentially understand about what is going on in the world around them.
0: Yeah, crows, uh, uh, we've done a few things over the years on that, and it's really remarkable just how incredibly intelligent, and their retention, sometimes, like, they get mad at people, which I've always found kind of amusing. Like somehow they they spot somebody and somebody's been, I don't know, like rude almost or mean or whatever. And the crows like keep track. And it's like, what you don't want to do is have a crow mad at you. Apparently
1: (laughs) they definitely have a very powerful memory. And if they have a negative experience, they are able to understand potentially what that impacts them, whether it is a threat or whether it was a, you know an adversive experience that they had and then a lot of times they will try to avoid it and or you know drive the source of that experience which if it's a person away from them um, and there's a lot of evolutionary characteristics that go into that but they definitely have a very good memory and very good comprehension of their environment.
0: And can they, depending on what sounds they're exposed to, can they duplicate sounds or even quote-unquote talk if, they're, if they hear enough of the same stuff, or are they not really equipped with that? Uh...
1: Corvids and uh, can, especially ravens and crows, seem to be relatively... Um, good at that. I've met a number of those species that are able to say words like hello. Um, I'm not as familiar with how much they're truly understanding what they're saying. Okay. Um, There's been a lot more research on the side with citizens and parrots that these birds do comprehend what they are saying. And there's even groups of researchers that are looking at things like reading in parrots And some of these birds, they are finding, actually understand what they're reading.
0: Wow. Understand what they're reading? Did I hear you correctly? Correct. Wow. Okay. I think we have to come to a pause for a moment to let that sink in everywhere. All right. Um, (laughs) I know, just because that's, uh, I mean, it's one thing if a crow doesn't, if he can say hello, but doesn't know that he's saying hello, and it's another thing for parrots to, uh, say a number of things and kind of have a sense of what they're saying and, and maybe use those words accordingly but what somebody has read wow yep.
1: there there's a number of researchers out there that are working on that problem um and it it is very intriguing when you get in and you listen to the way they're testing these birds and it's very um systematic and it's done very scientifically um, to try and determine are they really understanding what they're saying or reading or are they just mimicking. And as they're moving through this, um, there is data that is starting to support that these research groups, these, these animals are actually understanding what they're reading and then able to turn around and use things like computers and tablets to potentially communicate back to the researchers and the people that they're working with.
0: Wow. But this is not I mean that that's exactly why you do what you do and and I I guess on a whole different level much lower uh do what I do cuz I mean animals are amazing and there's always something new or newly discovered about them that's amazing whether it's just how adaptable they are or whether they might actually be reading and comprehending I mean they're they're just phenomenal
1: they are they there is like I said, I can find almost something interesting about almost every species
0: out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so I've mentioned a few times that uh, on March 29th, uh, next Tuesday, uh, Bush Wildlife Sanctuary in Jupiter, Florida, uh, will be uh, hosting a uh, or holding a wildlife panel uh, discussion, a um, woman in wildlife panel discussion specifically, and um, with three of your colleagues there. And uh, it's from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. now. Obviously, not everybody can get over then, but um, I did find out from, uh, from Amy, the executive director, Amy Kite, who's been on the show before, that it will be filmed and then ultimately made available on YouTube. So uh, that's great for people who can't, can't get over there. But I'm still hoping that uh, I might persuade you to give us a little sneak preview of at least part of your, your presentation that you'll deliver at that, uh, at that panel next week.
1: I don't know if... We have a specific organized presentation. I think it's pretty much going to be open to the public. Um, We'll probably be uh, summarizing, like we've talked about, our experience, what brought us into the profession. Um, I'm really excited to be part of this, this project because having started out in an animal field where I was certainly not the only woman, but... Early on back in high school and whatnot, there weren't as many women interested in the field, especially not in wildlife or in um, research projects out in the field at that time. And now it's kind of transitioned to the point that it, with my involvement over at Bush Wildlife, the majority of the people and the staff and a lot of the volunteers are women. And so it's, it's fun for me to have made that transition from what I feel like was a more male-dominated field to, here and Bush is a little bit of an anomaly because we're, we're primarily women at the facility where a lot of groups, it's kind of more 50-50. So I, I'm excited about that fact.
0: And along those lines, uh, Dr. Johnson, isn't the veterinary field just generally kind of gradually shifted to a more and more predominantly female um, profession? It has. Yeah. It
1: definitely has over the time, yeah. know, over time.
0: Yeah, because it's interesting to hear you say that when you started off, that was not the case. So that's that's kind of a big shift in not really that much time.
1: Right, right. By the time I, you know, got into high school, there was predominantly women in my class um, and not as many men. Um, and then it seems like we've continued to, you know, follow that train. Whenever I started here at Harmony Animal Hospital, there was only, I was the only woman um, and over a short period of time now, we're at a point where we have, you know, one one male doctor, Dr. Klein's, and then three women that work at the practice. So yeah. it's
0: interesting. It really is a, a very interesting shift in evolution. And uh, has anybody looked at sort of the, whatever underlying reasons there may be for that? I have not
1: seen any other than just the statistics that come out about how many women versus how many men are in the field. And I don't exactly remember those at this time, but I have not seen any specific reason why that shift has happened. Yeah. Um I think a lot of it was just over the last, you know, fifty years things have transitioned a lot that women are have easier paths to getting into the workforce and then therefore have easy easier paths to being able to pursue education and things that may not have been available, you know,
0: fifty plus years ago. Yeah, so it's maybe part of a, an overall cultural shift that's been applied maybe in veterinary medicine, among other things, too. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Heather Johnson, Medical Director at Bush Wildlife Sanctuary in Jupiter, Florida. And again, on the um, next Tuesday, the 29th of March, she'll participate in a women in wildlife panel discussion at the sanctuary, which later can be found on YouTube. And uh, she also works at a um, veterinary hospital, uh, where she's treating probably not so much wildlife, although occasionally something verging on wildlife as we've established here. So we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 239 9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813 433 0885. So it sounds like the panel will be kind of just like an opening thing about like sort of background, biographical info, whatever, and then sort of uh, inviting questions then from people who are attending.
1: I believe that's that's the
0: path I got you, so all right, so maybe i'll I'll continue in my vein as though I'm there next week asking some questions of you at least um because i'd be curious to know, like you've been working on all kinds of animals for for so long, so are when you go in depending on what animal you're treating at that moment, how translatable i guess if if that's the right word, are the methods from some sort of wildlife uh, species that you're working on at that day at the sanctuary versus like a dog the next day over at Harmony.
1: Right. And uh, there's actually a surprising number of things that might transfer. <laughs> um, I always talk to my clients when they tell me that there's no way they can train their dog to um, accept certain behaviors like brushing or grooming or those types of things. And I always share my experience over at the sanctuary where we free-shaped behavior in the panthers. So animals that we have no ability to coerce, we can't physically make them do it, you know, come into their enclosure or the, what we call their night house where they sleep, um, come up, lay down beside the, the chain link barrier in the back, um, push their hip up against the chain link and receive an injection without moving. And we did that all with positive reinforcement and food reward. And so I share those types of things with my clients that, you know, yes, it takes time, but it is easy to be able to train some of these medical behaviors for animals to try to minimize their stress when they come into the hospital situation. And Whenever we have dogs or cats that maybe came from a bad situation and had had negative experiences before and they come into the vet hospital and they're just terrified, there's a lot of different things we can talk to the owners about as far as trying to minimize that animal stress, um, have them work with training at home, Um, simple things like positive reinforcement, food rewards, distraction techniques that then when they come to the animal hospital can make it a lot less stressful for that animal to go through their exam. Um, On the other side, dealing with our exotic species, a lot of those happen to be prey species. And in prey species, so things like rabbits, small birds, animals that other animals in the wild would eat, um, they tend to hide all of their signs and symptoms until they physically just can't do it anymore. And so a lot of times when a bird comes in, and if it's an owner that's not experienced, they may think the bird's only been sick a day. But when we start asking more detailed questions, the bird has stopped doing some things at home, has changed their behavior a bit to the point that maybe things have been going on for a week or two. Um, And so stress is very difficult on these animals. It can literally kill them. So when we approach them, we have to be very calm. We have to go through things in a very slow, methodical way um a lot of those things are the same things i do when i'm dealing with a wild rabbit that's not used to being handled by people um you have to think about what that animal is going through what it's perceiving and try to minimize the stress so that we don't end up creating other medical problems as we go forward
0: and when you were explaining that dr Uh, johnson um it made me think of, uh, you're talking about the, the rabbits and small birds and others that because they are prey species, want to hide their illness and not obviously seem vulnerable. But um, it kind of made me, circling back to the other kinds of practice, it kind of made me think, aren't cats typically super stoic in that same kind of way?
1: Absolutely. I talk to my owners a lot, especially when we're trying to assess like, chronic conditions like arthritis that change very slowly over time. A cat is not going to cry out in pain. You know, we hurt, we moan, we groan, we complain about it. That's not part of cat's, you know, MO. They're going to just stop doing things. They change how they approach jumping up on a counter instead of jumping directly up it. Maybe they hop onto a chair and up on the counter, or they stop jumping up on the counters altogether. They stop moving around as much. They tend to spend more time sleeping. Um, Their signs can be very subtle because they're not a social animal and so a lot of times they don't have cues for the most part they're not social um the same way that dogs do dogs have more facial cues they have more uh other signs that are more obvious to people um in part because they're tend to be a social pack animal versus a more solitary
0: feline so i guess as uh, cat people we have to be particularly attuned to any kind of shifts because otherwise they're not going to overtly let us know the way our dogs might.
1: Absolutely. And cats, too, or or people in general, are very good at picking up signs of behavior changes when something is happening. So when the dog growls, when the cat hisses, people understand that that animal is stressed and saying, you know, I'm, I'm ready to protect myself or I need to be out of this situation. Yeah. People are not always as good as picking up on the animals that are so stressed that they've gotten to a point that they've frozen. So they sit still, they shut their eyes, or they stare straight ahead and they don't move. But that pet has the potential to be just as stressed and in just as much discomfort as the pet that's lashing out, depending on their personality type.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, again, being a a veterinarian at a wildlife sanctuary just seems like a very specific realm, even though to you now and for many years, apparently, probably it's like second nature. But still, what what would you say are, like, let's say three of the biggest challenges of being a vet at a wildlife sanctuary like Bush?
1: Probably one of the biggest challenges we face is how to figure out to provide longer-term care in some of our animals that are higher stressed. So things like fracture management, when we have uh, say a fox that's hit by a car that has come in with a fracture, then in a dog or a cat, we would do something like place the, you know, we jokingly call the cone of shame or the funnel Elizabethan collar. We would put some type of fixation device whether it's a cast or uh, whether it's actually one that involves pins and we would get that fracture to heal and we would use medication daily and that's how things would work over a period of of six weeks to two months say to get it to heal. When we have a fox, um, they can't handle the stress as a wild animal of being placed in an e collar. And so we don't always have those same treatment options. We're somewhat limited to trying to do fixation with plates, um, avoiding bandaging, doing fine, you know, confinement, and then having to sometimes figure out ways to get them to take their medication without physically giving it to them, hiding it in different types of food. Sometimes we have to do injectable drugs. So that's definitely a big shift. and and how cases are managed
0: for sure any other big challenge i have another question that uh, we're starting near the end of our time here but uh but that sounds like a a, a, and like when when you talked about the panthers and sort of the the training and uh to to get them to come lie down on the other side of the fence so i assume unless an animal like that a, a panther a bear whatever some of the animals that often end up at bush, are under kind of some sort of anesthesia or whatever. I uh, gather the idea is to have no human to animal contact just because the risks are too great.
1: Correct, correct. Those animals are not directly handled outside of limited contact through a fence during training procedures unless they are anesthetized.
0: Yeah. So
1: for their safety and for our staff safety.
0: Oh yeah, no, I, I would think, and uh, and that's great that they can be trained because otherwise, without that training, you described like for the Panthers and others, I'm sure like them. Yeah. The kind of care they would be able to get is limited without them being willing to come to the fence and get that injection or get whatever it is that they need to make them feel better, to make them be better, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. So just today there was a, a news of a tiger attack at an animal sanctuary in Collier County. Uh, apparently an employee that was not authorized to be with the tiger entered the enclosure and got attacked. So any comments about that, about either just that, if you know anything about that? It just happened earlier today. Um, I,
1: I hadn't heard anything about that.
0: Okay, yeah, so it's it's like this Wooten's Airboats, which I guess is part of their tour or part of their facility. They have like a, a sanctuary with some gators and otters and turtles, and I guess t- somehow two lions and two tigers, which... Anyway, that's a whole other conversation, I guess, for another time. Okay, since that's not familiar to you uh, as of this morning, I guess I'd be curious to know, yeah, a little bit more, you started to touch on them or we started to touch on them, but any particular protocols at bush for maintaining safety of, of around, especially those panthers and bears and other animals that could be obviously dangerous?
1: Absolutely. There's, there's uh, training protocols that we have. Um, so the majority of the animals you've just listed are considered class one wildlife. And those are going to be your animals that carry a greater risk in trying to care for them. Um, and, and with those individuals, that is the last group when employees are being trained that they are trained on so that they have the most experience before they go into work with those animals. Um, there are a number of barriers in place, locked doors, double entryways to enclosures, and safety protocols that we have in place to be sure we know where the animal is and that it is secured away from any site that people are going to be entering because we do not go into the enclosure with any of those animals again unless they are anesthetized.
0: Mm-hmm. I got you. All right, my last uh, question for, uh, for today, Dr. Johnson, is, and I mentioned this earlier in the show as well, one of the kind of more significant stories in the bush wildlife sanctuary world is that it will be relocating to a, to a larger nearby property what are some of the plans and logistics uh that, that you're working on as the medical director to move the animals i mean again they're not going far but as we've already noted we're talking about bears and florida panthers and right gators and or crocs snakes etc so what kind of specifics uh, have you been sort of gearing up to to plan that relocation
1: right Um, A lot of the animals that are not used to going to education programs are actually being trained to enter carriers and have the door shut, and we're starting to work on then picking those carriers up. So the smaller animals like the foxes, and we're working on getting them used to as many aspects of what will happen the day they have to move as possible. Okay. Um, And then the other larger animals for safety purposes that we can't have those options available um, where those animals will be anesthetized and we will transport them um, in in uh, large crates or uh, vehicles that day under anesthesia to the new site and recover them because it's only a, a, a handful of miles down the road.
0: Yeah, I gotcha. Well, it sounds like not surprising. There's very much a plan in place and uh, it's got to be very carefully worked out, I'm sure. So, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, we have reached the end of our time. We're going to speak with Dr. Heather Johnson from Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. The website for, for the sanctuary is bush, of course, B-U-S-H, B-U-S-H, wildlife.org is the website there. And then her, the vet hospital that she's at is Harmony Animal Hospital. The website there is petvets.com. And again, the uh, the Women in Wildlife panel discussion is next Tuesday, the 29th, uh, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. And again, I'll be uh, mentioning on the show when I know that there's a... Uh, access to a youtube uh, version of that later on so dr heather thank you johnson thank you so much for joining us today on talking animals it was really fascinating conversation thank you
1: all right you are so welcome have a
0: great day you too bye-bye, bye-bye. in a moment i'll speak with uh, thalia tatham about the new st petersburg restaurant she's opening this week house of vegano which specializes in vegan sushi Kate has offered her food and pop-ups and other fleeting settings, but this represents her first permanent brick-and-mortar restaurant. That talk coming up in just a moment, right now, that we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with a long-standing favorite here on the show, Brian Regan, but a piece we've never played before, which ties into our conversation we just had with Dr. Johnson. Here's doctors and veterinarians from Brian Regan in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF.
2: My doctor looked at me and said, Brian, you are way too sedentary. So I vowed in that moment to get a dictionary. <laughs> but I haven't gotten around to it, you know, just been laying around a house. <laughs> or is it lying around a house? Doctors specialize, right? Last month I went to an ear, nose and throat doctor Last week, I went to an arch-of-the-foot, small-of-the-back, nape-of-the-neck doctor. I have fallen arches, my small's too big, and I have a trick nape. It's weird, in the human world, there's a doctor for every body part, but in the animal world, a veterinarian takes care of all animals and all their parts? It's got to be the hardest job in the world. (laughs) Where are the bighorn sheep knee doctors, (laughs) the wildebeest gastroenterologists, (laughs) the giraffe throat, throat, and throat doctors?
0: All right, that was Brian Regan in today's Comedy Corner. with a piece called Doctors and Veterinarians, taken from his Netflix special, On the Rocks. Now it's time to speak with Thalia Tatham about House of Vegano, her new vegan sushi restaurant opening in St. Petersburg this very week. Here's Thalia Tatham on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Thalia.
3: Grand Rising, Duncan. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. So let's jump in. I know this uh, is the week of the restaurant's opening, so it must be a busy day, a part of a busy week. What What is the actual day that people get to enter the House of Vegana? So
3: the actual we we opened on Monday. Okay. That was our first official opening. Um, we're actually going to also have a like a grand opening on Friday.
0: Okay. And kind
3: of be like, yeah, we just want people to come in, have a good time, take some pictures. Um, So it's going to be kind of like a party atmosphere here on Friday, Um, and we are going to be open Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 11 to 2 with a small break and then reopen again at 3 to 6. And then on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we'll be open from 11 to 2. And then a small break again, reopening it from 3 to 9.
0: That's great. Wow. So uh, opening a restaurant, uh, a new restaurant, is always a challenging enterprise. You know, with COVID kind of still lurking around the corner, it seems like, maybe even more so. So why now? What? Why the timing now? The timing, well, it, I, I feel like the stars aligned because
3: for me, I was doing pop-ups and doing different markets. Um and just wanting to kind of get the sushi out there, because um, I know for myself being vegan, um, it's kind of what I was missing. So I felt that may be something that other vegans were missing as well. Um, and as far as like the storefront being open, um, I have amazing realtor, and she was able to find this location inside of Body Electric. Athletic company, um, and they have a cafe space, and so the timing just worked out perfectly. Where you know I had I, I you know tried to hustle and get the funds ready to open up a storefront, and everything really just worked out.
0: That's great, and I guess you know because you've done a number of pop-ups and other experiences, where you could, you could probably sort of extrapolate and say, you know, I think a restaurant would succeed now. I think it's our time.
3: That's how. That's exactly how it felt. Yes. That's that great.
0: So tell me a little bit about the menu at House of Vegano.
3: So, House Pagano, um the, the our flagship really is the is the sushi, but we also yeah. have we're going to have ramen, um, and we have dumplings, uh, poke bowls, and we're also going to have like three like house salads. Um, we're going to have like a papaya salad, a ginger salad, and a cucumber salad. Wow! Um, and all everything is 100 percent plant based vegan. Um, I know there's really some really cool things out there that are happening in the vegan community, like they have the The fish that looks like fish, but it's not, and looks like tuna, and all of that stuff is really fun. But I really want to keep the food, like food-based, plant, whole food, plant-based. So that's really what, yeah, that's really what we, um, what we're all about. And with the ramen and the sushi and everything, um, the entire menu can also be soy-free and gluten-free because that's also, I think, a challenge for a lot of people when they go out to eat. For sure. yeah, they find it really challenging to make sure that things are, um, just there's the, like, I just, I really didn't want a lot of barriers and restrictions when people come in. I want them to come in, sit down and enjoy and not have to worry about, is this vegan? Is this, you know, it's just. Yes, everything is good here, you're, right. like, and you're welcome.
0: Yeah. yeah, the answer is yes, no matter what question you're going to ask. The answer is yes. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So for those listening, though, who might think of vegan sushi as, as uh, you know, perplexing or uh, almost a contradiction in terms, tell me about some of the roles and other things you offer in that way at the restaurant.
3: Yeah, that that is a question I get asked a lot. Like, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's vegan sushi, how is it vegan cause how, or how is it sushi um, is a question that I do get asked a lot. And mm-hmm. what, so for the volcano roll, um, the volcano roll, I use uh, lion's mane from Cactus Hat. Um, I have, there's a local grower here, uh, uh, his name is Joe Iovino, and he makes the most delicious mushrooms locally, and we use his mushrooms in our rolls as well as our ramen. And with that, it's what I do is I marinate the lion's mane, and that... Turns in, in when you cook lion's mane, it really turns into a really good texture that kind of mimics like seafood, or and then depending on how you cook it and how you season it. And so that turns into like my seafood dynamite. I also use king oyster mushroom and I shred that, and that turns into my into my spicy crab. Um, jackfruit is another uh, very versatile um, vegetable that can be used, um, and it might be a fruit, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, <laughs> I, I might be wrong on that, but I, either way. It's um, vegetables like especially mushrooms and different like the textures that they have. They can be very versatile. Um, So with the spicy uh, crab, it's shredded. It looks and feels like crab, but it's mushroom. And with jackfruit, I use that in the jack. I make a jackfruit salad for the Cali roll, Mm. and then it's and it you get the same bite. And that was kind of what I was what I felt like I was missing because I think when you when people go out, they are they get the avocado rolls and the cucumber rolls, or if they're you know, if, if they're lucky, they might get a sweet potato roll. But I wanted vegans to have the opportunity to ha- actually still enjoy a food that they loved and that they missed, and I'd have the memory of it, and not so much the fish—the the memory of the fish—but the same umami flavors.
0: Right. So get I, get an array of things they could choose and not feel like, perfect. hey, we're, we're just limited to these two or three over here. We've got all exactly. these. Yeah.
3: Right. Exactly.
0: That's so great. These sound uh, tremendous. And uh, what would you say, I mean, this all sounds so promising. And again, uh, we talked about the timing is right. What would you say your biggest challenge in this initial period might be? The, um, the biggest challenge
3: I'm having right now is needing more help, which is a good problem to have. Um, uh, I... I, I like to put everything out there like with all good intentions and all like just positive energy. So I, I, am, my hope is that this is going to be successful and that we can duplicate this in other cities. Yeah. Um, and I think just making sure to get the, like just getting people that are also passionate about food to possibly come and um, apply. Cause that would be amazing. That's um, great. so yeah, I think that's my biggest challenge right now is this get, um,
0: getting help getting people to join join the band as it were yeah yes. so. all right well we're just about out of time but we've been speaking with athalia tatham How's of Vegano? i think probably the best way to find out something online if correct me if i'm wrong is is by your instagram and uh i guess facebook yes. as well maybe is and uh so we're really looking forward to uh, getting over there and having uh something to eat over there and good good luck to you and uh thanks so much for joining us on talking animals thank
3: you duncan i appreciate it so much
0: take care thank you Bye-bye. All right, it's Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Stay tuned for Scott Elliott and PR News Headlines coming up first.